broadcasting from the campus of Lynn Benton Community College. We are the Mid-Valley STEM CTE Hub. I'm your host, Casey, and this, this is Closing the Gap. Listeners, today we have a very special guest on, Dr. Lisa Avery, the president of Lynn Benton Community College. Dr. Avery has made such an impact on LBCC and the surrounding community in the short time that she's been president. She's been able to accomplish this by being very accessible and a great role model in the Lynn Benton County area. So without further ado, let's welcome Dr. Lisa Avery to the show. All right. So how are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. Thank you. So I kind of want to start this off with um, kind of a fun question. I think that educators um, can be some real superheroes. And I was wondering if you could have one superpower, what would it be and why? Well, I have to say, I I really, we've been watching all of the Marvel shows and, you know, all those characters have powers. And I asked my daughter who decided she wanted to be a shapeshifter. I couldn't (laughs) come up with anything as awesome as uh as shape shifting but i think time travel would be cool mm-hmm. and um a little bit like hermione granger and harry potter where she's able to do some uh, i think some time turning with uh with limited powers ascribed to that i think that would be um that would be awesome so i think that would be mine um i would like to be able to go back and and visit um and, and observe people in the past and look at those settings and also I think have a glimpse into what's coming down the road for us in the future so yeah I'm going to go with time travel awesome that's a good pick what's yours can I ask I know you're the interviewer but I want to know Casey (laughs) tell us your superpower um I feel like I've always liked the idea of flying although I'm also very afraid of heights so it's kind of like I don't know it doesn't make much sense but I do like you know a good like panoramic view so um (laughs) I think I'd go with flying yeah that's a pretty good one too. Awesome. Yeah. And safe on airfare. Um. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And no delays and interrupted travel. <laughs> right. Uh, so I know that you're a first generation college graduate. Could you speak to like why higher education um, is important, whether it's like a trade school, a community college or university and kind of what, um, you know, higher education means to you? Yeah, I love to talk about being first gen because I think that's really important for people to hear and for me to talk about a lot. I think it's an important element, um, certainly of my identity. And and then also that students sometimes who are first gen don't understand all the opportunities that they have out there because they may not have seen those at home. Uh, for me and my experience, I was um, a child of teen parents who way back then had a harder time being able to get into college and make it through college um, because they had a little one at home. And so I really, I think I understand the barriers that students can face. My parents actually were tremendous supporters of my uh, my work as a college student, uh, but it was new to them and for them. Uh, a, a happy footnote to that story is the weekend I earned my doctorate my dad got his associate's degree at uh, Ivy Tech Community nice. College in Indiana. And so he would have been in his late 40s, I think, at the time, got an associate's degree with straight A's and went on to earn a bachelor's degree. 
And so for me, I keep that in mind too, because it's about opportunity. And then he was able to move from a really tough um, hands-on job as he got a little bit older to a, a, a more of an office job because of his bachelor's degree. And so that opportunity that it provided them helped him to kind of take a step up in terms of the economic ladder. And for me, that's why I work in education, especially in community college, because we take people wherever they are and we help them find that first step up that they need. And that is something nobody can take away from them. Nobody can take away my degrees, my dad's associates, or a GED, a certificate, or a transfer degree that students earn at LBCC. And that's, uh, that's so transformational. And that's why I'm here. I can totally agree. I think that there's something really empowering about um, going to school and getting your degree. Um, I'm kind of in my like third year of the visual comm program right now. And so I've seen a lot of the same people for the last three years. And um, I think it's just like really great this term, um, seeing some people like back in the um, class that they've started getting jobs, like in the fields that they're studying and, and like just like the way they're carrying themselves now and they just seem so empowered and so confident and i just i just think it's such a great thing yeah that's awesome and and again it's also especially with community colleges because we take people from so many different walks of life it could be people who have had a career before and are coming back to upskill or reskill um, it can be you know um, early learning opportunities that we're a part of and we work at oak creek correctional center too to give the young women there the educational empowerment that they need to be able to get a better step when they're released so all of that all of it or you know a valedictorian who's taken some classes with us because uh it's smaller and cheaper and um maybe a more connected faculty experience in some of the classes than she'll get when she lands at OSU. So any of those things are all why we're here. And that's why I love it. So exciting. I think that's really interesting that um, that LBCC is working with Oak Creek. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Because I, I feel like, um, you know, education um, as like a means to changing your life is like super important. You know, I have to say I'm not the most qualified to talk about our um, experience what we do at Oak Creek, but I have heard from a couple of our faculty about their teaching roles there. I'll give a, a shout out to Remicia McGee in our English program who has taught the, the young women inmates and has loved it. And so um, I know that she, and, and COVID a little bit has changed some of what we're able to do and where. So what, I don't know exactly where we're at right now, but I'm, I'm going to say if you haven't had her on a podcast yet, you ought to, and ask her about Oak Creek, and she also has a scholarship fund that she um, runs in honor and memory of her mother. So I, I love that, that people are paying it forward with the educational and family support that they've gotten. So yeah, we'll, let's get her on the show and have her tell you about it. But I have a background in working in corrections research too, and can say that um, the, the folks in corrections who are serving their time um, and and doing what they needed to do in terms of their sentence. I, I think it's a social justice issue that we have to provide them some opportunities so that when they get out, they're less likely to have recidivism and more likely to be able to support themselves and their families. And, and I hope that uh, LBCC is making a small positive impact there at Oak Creek. Totally, I, uh, I really agree. Um, and also thank you for that recommendation. Okay. I'll, uh, yeah, I'll, uh, sure. yeah I'll, I'll listen when she's on. Okay. <laughs> awesome. 
Um, and I feel like community colleges kind of, they get a bad rap sometimes. Um, I think there's like a misconception about the value of what community colleges have to offer. And um, I know like when I was in high school and I was starting to look at colleges and that's like a decade ago um, and community colleges didn't really seem like, like a glamorous option and their degrees maybe seemed like not as valuable. And as a community college student now that's getting ready to graduate, um, I, I really don't feel that same way. And I was wondering if you could help us dispel some of those misconceptions. Absolutely. You know, I think you're right that we in the past have either gotten a bad rap or people maybe don't understand what we have to offer. Um, and I like to talk about, as I was alluding to in the earlier part of our discussion about us having offerings from womb to tomb, right? Like we really have something for everybody from little ones to, to senior citizens and mm -hmm. everybody in between. Um, but in many ways, we're the, the best kept secret of the American educational system. I think some of that has begun to shift because uh, President Obama and now particularly uh, President Biden and Vice President Harris have made a, a real outreach to us. And I think we have a secret weapon in the White House, although maybe not much of a secret anymore, but Dr. Jill Biden uh, teaches community college uh, and works for a colleague of mine, Ann Kress, at Northern Virginia Community College. Now she still is teaching. I, I understand it requires a great deal of security when she makes appearances on campus. So that sometimes is, uh, is not always easy or spontaneous for the campus mm -hmm. police and security, but they think that's a good problem to have because the vice president herself, who has a doctorate, and I think he, she teaches um, in English, um, is there teaching America's adult students. And so that for me is a big statement. Part of the misconception, I really think um, it, there's a social class undertone. We, we take, we don't try to be elite in community colleges and we really pride ourselves on being the underdog and serving everybody. And in fact, I love saying we take the top 100% of our applicants, right? We take everybody and offer them something to help improve their situation. And not many of our four-year colleagues, um, really none of them can say that. We work great with our transfer partners, so I'm not in any way degrading them. I just think that we offer something that's a particular niche. And one last bit, I think, is to our employer partners. Community colleges, more than anybody else, are really well linked to industry, and that's our sweet spot. And I think you'll see us moving forward on that in the years to come. For sure. I think especially LBCC has um, a yeah. great network of you know community partners um, because we are in such an industrial area. Yes. How did you decide to pursue a career in education? Was it all about um, your dad, like kind of like following your footsteps and getting a degree? Because um, I know you weren't always a college president. You started working, you know, and as an assistant professor, and then you moved to a professor, and then dean, and now here you are, the president of LBCC. Um, can you talk a little bit about that, please? Well, I could say I really got to college when I was 18 and have never quite left. I had an uncle who gave me that advice. Uh, that uh, he, he wished that he had been able to work in higher education. I think he thought it might be an easier lifestyle. I'm not sure if it's easier. It's very hard work uh, and it makes a longstanding impact. So I, I was inspired by some of my undergraduate professors. I went to uh, Ball State University in, in Indiana. Like a lot of first-gen students, I went to the first place that accepted me, uh, had a good experience there, was a part of their honors college and had some faculty who really uh, saw maybe a, a diamond in the rough 
and helped to uh, to polish a little bit. And I was able then to move on to graduate school at the University of Illinois and stayed and, and again with great mentoring um, by several different faculty members, um, stayed in um, and finished my doctorate there. For me then I spent the first 10 years of my career in the classroom. And in some ways that's the most rewarding work I have to say, I mean, um, I love what I do as the president, but when you're teaching in a class and I taught uh, research and statistics, you get, you can, it's really um, motivating and inspiring when you can see students for whom the light bulb finally comes on, on difficult content. And it's, it's invigorating and validating and you can see the difference between the beginning of the quarter and the end of the quarter. And so I loved being a part of that journey for hundreds, if not thousands of students. I ended up in administration because I was good at spreadsheets and math and uh, budgets and all of those kinds of uh, meta work that many of our committees uh, involve in higher ed and found that I liked that too. I felt that it used a little bit of a different part of my brain after teaching some of the same courses for a long time. So I tried a couple interim positions, which I encourage anybody to apply for if they can, because it gives you a chance to sort of uh, date, not marry. <laughs> in terms of this new kind of position and see if it will fit for you. Um, and I found that the, the administrative and management side was actually rewarding as well. How I ended up as a president, and I'll be, uh, I'll be brief on this so you don't have the longest podcast ever, but I went to a training um, in Texas when I was working as the chief international officer in Spokane. I was working for the community college district there. And the, our chancellor sent me to this training in Houston, Texas in July. And you know, we're so spoiled up here in the Northwest with our summers. Uh, and it was mostly a, a room full of Texans. It was 40 hours of uh, intensive workshops and training for the week. And uh, I was so hot. <laughs> it was so, it was so, so warm out. And um, it, we had probably 20 different college presidents from around the country flew in to meet with us and to talk with us about their careers and what they did and, and how it worked and what they liked about it. And for me, that light bulb came on just like, oh my gosh, this is what I really want to do. And I think I would be good at it. And so I went back and told the chancellor who had sent me to that training. I told her, I said, I came back and I realized I want to be a college president. She said, well, I knew you were going to be one. That's why I sent you to the training. So again, good mentoring was helpful in that capacity because somebody saw potential in me that I hadn't even seen. And I think that's an important message. Um, and something I try to carry on with employees too is making sure that we're giving people a lot of opportunities for that growth and to stretch beyond what they think their current boundaries might be. Excellent, excellent. Uh, what does a college president do exactly? Um, could you kind of give us an example of like a, a day in the life? You know, I guess for, for better and worse, there's no typical day. And for me, that's actually great because I love variety and a lot of different kinds of tasks. If I were to divide up what my week looked like, probably at least half of the 60-ish hours, give or take any given week, um, at least half of that time is external outreach and advocacy. So working with our legislators, um, our elected officials locally, regionally, at the state level and federally, and, and then too with our funders and donors to make sure that they've got the college on their mind 
telling them success stories, but also bringing them our challenges and asking for additional resources or some policy changes that we might need to help serve students better. And so a lot of that is really being kind of the, the voice and the spokesperson on ground for the college so that when they run into an issue or a challenge or they have a couple extra dollars, they think of LBCC. And so some of that is about really in, you know, creating and building um, relationships with each of those folks and so that they do call on us when they need. And in fact, we've, we've had lots of examples of that where um, I get texts or emails and, and say, we have this, this uh, problem or a service that needs to be provided. Do you think that the college could possibly step in? And almost always my answer is gonna be yes. Sometimes it's yes, but I have to figure out the details. So then I work with, and this is probably the other half of the time, is to work with our great staff, our VPs, and, and all of our faculty and, and um, employee groups to try to make sure that on ground, people have the resources that they need to do the delivery of our programs. And then also working with them to have relationships so that when they've got issues or challenges, they come to me. Or if there's faculty who need equipment that they can't get through our normal processes, or they've got an idea about a great program that we could offer if we were able to find out a way. Mm -hmm. Some of that is what I view really as my, my role is to be a little bit that matchmaker between what's needed in the community and what the college has and can provide um, if we have uh, the resources that we need. And, and you can hear in there that there are challenges around resources and budget. And so many times that involves me being able to lay out for our legislators the real fiscal challenges that are facing our communities. And in particular in Linden Benton counties, as we come out of the pandemic, they've really been hit differently by, by COVID-19. And so that's something that I tried to make sure that I address is that we see the college as the number one place as sort of the one-stop shop for people as they try to rebound from COVID-19. And we want to continue to stay in that role and in that capacity but that for many of our community members, it's been a tough couple of years and the college needs to make sure that we are doing all we can to support them and that we have resources to do so. I think that's great because it kind of, you know, it's like one of one more step of like validating why community colleges are so great in communities at large because they're really a backbone. Um, you know, we're holding everybody up. Well, not we, you and LVCC are. <laughs> especially in our rural areas, Casey, you know, we don't have, we are the one-stop educational shop um, in, for a lot of people in both counties who don't have any other access to, to a higher education or a point of entry. And that could be either a GED or transfer courses. And we have a center in Sweet Home. We have three buildings in Lebanon. We, have, we do lots and lots of great work in Benton County. And it's, so it's not just Albany and Corvallis, but both counties that we serve. And, and I think, I hope, and I also really believe that our residents see us, yeah, as that trusted uh, resource. For sure, for sure. Um, so I feel like it, visibility and being like really accessible in the community seems to be sort of like a philosophy for you and how you like run um, your college. And I was kind of wondering, you know, being a role model in the way of like, being a queer person out invisible, like with this really high level position in a community is something that you find important, you know, specifically being a role model for um, young women and young queer folks. Could you talk about that a little bit? Absolutely. Um, yeah, 
certainly my full identity and my authentic um, personhood, right, has to be part of, of really almost every every situation, relationship, and transaction. And so, you know, my wife is an important part of the college community. Uh, whenever there are more events, she would love to be able to attend those. And the same with our daughters, because we really feel like um, we want everybody to um, to have to both have visibility and approachability and authenticity. And I have to say, people have been incredibly warm and welcoming. And and I don't see that as a partisan issue. It's not really political for me. It's more um, more about about relationships and authenticity. And so I've had a, across the aisle <laughs> in both Lynn and Benton counties, uh, warm warm outreach to Allison and me and to the girls. And so we then try to make sure that we extend that and um, pay it forward in all of our community activities. And, and you know, we're really active with uh, our oldest is a freshman at OSU. And the youngest is in seventh grade at uh, Timber Ridge here nice. in the middle school. So we also try to be, you know, just sort of regular parents participating in that stuff too. Um, and I think that that's important because there are not probably a lot of LGBT families in those, certainly um, in the middle school. And, and that's important too for those youth to see, uh, just as important for our daughters. Totally. I think it's really important for young people to see, you know, other people, like older people that they can identify with and like look up to as role models and be like, oh, you know, I can do that as well. So, so is speaking of role models, though, is there someone that you look up to particularly? I guess I would um, come back to both um, to, to family a little bit on this and say that both of my parents um, have been tremendously supportive and, and, and in fact, my step parents as well. Um, and in terms of all that they've done and sacrificed for me. Um, and one of my grandmothers, actually neither of my grandmothers finished, uh, finished high school, um, but both parents and step-parents, everybody finished, um, finished high school. But for my grandma who didn't finish high school and it was due to some health and I think economic challenges at the time, for her, that was a, a real, um, an issue. She was ashamed of it. She was incredibly bright. She could beat me at Scrabble like I never even had a prayer. And I'm a pretty good speller and a pretty good vocabulary, but she just wiped the table with me and Scrabble every time. And and her, she was um, a first generation, um, or she was the first generation born in the U.S. to immigrant parents. And so to me, um, I think that the what looked like a simple small life that she led uh, and, and yeah, on paper, she wouldn't have looked like somebody who was an educational success, but she was so smart and so strong and patient and kind and, and passed that compassion and um, on to me. And also that she wanted to be treated with dignity and respect and deserved and commanded that and believed that that's how, um, how our family should approach the world. So mm -hmm. to me, that's a perfect role model because I saw her do it, practice it, and then and hand that on to me. For sure. I have lots of, lots of famous people role models, of course, but uh, I think on the, those longer life lessons that stick more sometimes closer to home are the ones that, that have the biggest impact. 
totally totally yeah i have um have an aunt that i look up to a lot in the same way of just kind of like in awe of what she's been able to accomplish and it's kind um, of cool right because then you get to know her as a person while also seeing her out in the world too yeah yeah totally yeah uh family can be really great sometimes sometimes <laughs> they all, i mean it's not always perfect right but at the same right. time um you know we've got each other that's that's all who we could really count on in this world so yeah it's useful totally uh so a while ago you had mentioned that you were also a person in stem um you were talking about um teaching statistics and i was wondering if um you know math was your favorite stem area or if there was another area in stem that you particularly enjoyed wow i suppose it probably is math you know i've done more in math than in the hard sciences or or in engineering and for me, I love the problem solving logic puzzles of math, statistics and numbers. And I love showing people um, all kinds of folks, but particularly underrepresented students that they can get it. And that in fact, they have to get it. And part of what it, my work in statistics was on, uh, not only on, on teaching the quantitative analysis part, but then helping students um, learn how to read research articles so I guess it's sort of information literacy around STEM and, and in particular statistics so that they could sort out the good, the bad and the ugly in terms of research articles. And, and there are so many different publications. And in fact, now anybody can self-publish just basically anything um, on Twitter or elsewhere. And I think it's really critical for consumers of that information to understand how the, how the research methods were done Mm -hmm. and to try to unwind a little bit of the statistical procedures to see whether or not it was a good sample, are the findings generalizable, etc. I think those are really, really important life skills and we wouldn't have them without math. Part of what the Mid-Valley STEM CT Hub uh, does is we provide some representation to chronically underrepresented populations in STEM and CTE. I know that LBCC does as well. How would you like to see LBCC and the Mid-Valley STEM CT Hub work together in the future to further represent and uplift all types of people into working in STEM and skilled trades and uh, going on into higher education? Well, I guess to me, it, it starts and ends with good jobs. And again, that's another sort of bipartisan thing, like love and family. Good jobs are, I think, a, a, have a lot of bipartisan appeal, no matter what somebody's background is. Most students who come to us, and in fact, most students who go through any, any kind of higher education are not there to get an education just for education's sake, but to get a good job or a better job or a better paying job, all of the above. And of course, education for the education's sake is, is important and valuable in and of itself, especially being a, a civically minded um, learner. But I feel like in particularly here in the Mid-Valley, there are so many amazing like manufacturing jobs or so many high-tech STEM jobs. And right now they're going unfilled or people are bringing in workers from other parts of the state or the country or the world because they can't fill those jobs. And to me, it's really important that we have the talent. We have the talent, the talent is here. What we have is a gap between where that talent is and their points of entry and success from education and training. Uh, so, you know, if we take any of the middle schools here in, in Albany or Corvallis or, or Sayo or Sweet Home, those, those schools are full of smart, talented kids. 
Many of them though, don't finish middle school, high school, or get to any higher education. And so I guess where I would like to see that nexus is for LB to continue to work really closely with the STEM hub and then all of our, our K-12 partners to make sure that we're, we're bringing and cultivating and guiding that talent so that those students too, who are diamonds in the rough, can have somebody looking over their shoulder and helping them get to a two-year degree or a certificate um, or a four-year transfer degree if that's gonna be their option of choice. Again, all of those will give them good jobs that they can stay in our community, be able to afford it here in our community, which is becoming more expensive, and then give back um, themselves when they are parents and, and workers out there in our industry partnerships. I know when I, I met you the other day in the non-destructive testing lab, um, Scott was telling me about how uh, we have some of like the greatest like NDT um, you know, companies in the area and they're working with like really cool things like exotic metals and um, like military parts. And um, they're just like really great paying jobs. And not many people know that it's a career option. You know, people could be getting these really great paying jobs and um, they just, they don't know they exist or they don't know that they want to do them without like maybe some mentorship. Well, and I think it's important for us to help people to match that talent and the opportunities. And it, um, I think that's maybe a better way to say it than what I said before, but you're right. When we think about things like non-destructive testing or machining or um, radiography, I mean, there are amazing opportunities, but I think for a lot of students, if we, you know, we, I was talking about middle school. So if we, if we take middle school as an example, many of those kids can't see themselves they, they don't have a, a future map that's drawn out for them. So they may have talent and potential, but they need a link to the opportunity, again, to get that point of entry in so that somebody can help them and show them and let them you know, either tour a company. I know Pipeline has and STEM Hub have done a lot of great stuff with our industry partners being able to show middle and high school folks around in the community. And some of that is a bit on hold because of COVID, but really being able to, to let people see themselves in those opportunities. I think for first-gen students and for students coming from poverty, it can, it can be hard to see the opportunities because they feel burdened by obstacles or because perhaps they haven't had the role models of somebody working in some of these industries that, that they could learn from. And so I think that the college is really great and that the STEM hub is, is super useful in making that, uh, that transition, right? Between helping talented people find opportunity. I think that that's, that, and particularly our underserved groups who haven't had the luxury of that kind of mentoring um, in the past, I think that's really where we need to continue to build on successes going forward. And, and as we climb out of the pandemic, the workforce is going to be needed. And we know we have the talent, but we got to get them linked to opportunity. Of course, of course, yes. Can you please speak to why inclusion, equity, and diversity in STEM, skilled trades, and education as a whole is important? Well, I think I probably just did, so I might have accidentally gone ahead of you. Sorry there, yeah. but no, well, when we when we analyze, I mean, to me, I think it's important to 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 really explicitly mention poverty because many of our community members are struggling and are going to continue to struggle more as the costs of living go up. Um, but for diverse learners, uh, for our ethnic minority groups, 
for women in some fields, there has been um, there have been barriers to entry, and those are either can be um, perceived barriers or actual ones. And I think it's it's integral for us, our employer partners, understand that they need to diversify their workforce. They're not always sure how, um, but we are the key. We we the community college sector is the one that educates America's diverse workforce, and we need to continue to try to make sure that we're ramping up our production of degrees and certificates because our employers are begging for more help. And they know they need multilingual workers, for instance. Obviously, we need lots of Spanish speakers around here to be able to work in all of the different job settings. And we need to make sure that they not only feel welcome, feel included and have opportunities, but that they're successful. And and I know we have some great success stories at LBCC um, and in fact, I heard recently from our uh, local police chief that they will be soon swearing in um, a graduate who is an LBCC grad, came through our programs and is going to be there really, really desperate for officers at, uh, in the police force right now nationwide and, and here in Albany. And so she's not only an LBCC graduate, but she's also bilingual and bicultural, and that's going to be tremendously valuable in the workforce. I know that uh, law enforcement isn't exactly STEM, but it's an underserved area uh, related to all of the different ways we make sure that we're including diverse learners. So I'm, I'm really thrilled. I hope I get invited to the swearing in. Yeah, fingers crossed. That's really awesome. Yeah. Uh, what advice can you give to women and other gender minorities that are looking into STEM and um, skilled trades careers? I would say the number one thing is to remember that you belong. You belong, you are needed, you are wanted, and you deserve a chance. And so to not give up or take no for an answer, uh, certainly at least the first time through, um, and continuing to be persistent and remind people that you hold the rightful seat at the table. And I think that that's, that's a really important lesson is to just internalize too, that you belong and that you're good enough and that you're, you, know, you have done the training and you're prepared enough and that they'd be lucky to have you in that job or in this program. And so uh, blending access and opportunity and making sure, you know, at LBCC, we talk a lot about education for all. And that's one of the things that I've been spending a lot of my fall and, and we'll be spending more of the winter talking about. And I alluded to it earlier, education for all, that the college has something to offer to everyone. And in fact, I think right now, it's such a critical time in our society. We have to make sure that we are helping more people to take advantage of that. And I think, especially in our rural areas, that's another area, that's another part of being underserved is being from a rural community being further away and sometimes being digitally disadvantaged, right? Not having uh, broadband access when you really, really need it like we do these days. And, um, and so for we've seen many rural men and rural women both leaving education and the workforce. And my message to them is we have a seat at the table for you here at OBCC. We provide education for all and we do it at a good price with super high quality. So it's time, get started <laughs> and you belong. You belong in these programs and in these fields and you're needed as a worker in today's economy. Excellent. Thank you so much for coming on the show today, Lisa. I really appreciate your time. All right, thanks for having me. Take care.
Thank you for joining us for this episode of Closing the Gap. If you like this show, subscribe on Spotify. You can also find us on Instagram at MVSTEMCTE, on Twitter at MidValleySTEM, and online at MidValleySTEM.org. Until next time, keep progressing.